show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads these reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near john to the seven churches which are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from jesus christ the faithful witnesses and the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and they who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom of and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, and white as snow, and his face like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, and if refined by a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went two sharp, a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet and was dead. But he said, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Continue with Jesus' words. And I have the keys of Hades of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are in the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are you saw are the seven churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the, mo in the midst of the paradise of God. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you have are about to suffer. Indeed, the evil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated. Good morning. There's a group of people, a special forces group, known as the Navy SEALs Warfare Combatant Craft Crewmen, abbreviated SWCC. They have a slogan, on time, on target, never quit. I was looking at their code and their creed and was drawn to many parallels of what we as Christians ought to be and how Christians ought to conduct themselves. Their code, I serve my country, my Navy, and my team with honor and integrity. I got the thinking. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The code says I am responsible for my actions and accountable to my teammates both on and off the water. I lead by example. By example. And I got to thinking about what we're reading in the text today and how my works matter. The code goes on. I am the guardian of the standard. I maintain my craft, my equipment, and myself to the highest state of readiness. In other words, I got to thinking about how I will not dabble in trivial, temporary things, but see that my life is spent pursuing the things of God and exalting the name of Jesus Christ. The creed goes as follows. In our nation's time of need, an elite brotherhood of sailors stands ready. I was reminded in the scripture of the call to be alert, to be watchful. Defending freedom, they serve with honor and distinction. I am proud to be one of these sailors. In church, I got to thinking about this too. Are you proud to be called a child of God? I am a special warfare combatant craft crewman. Or in our terms, putting it right out there and saying, I am a Christian. A quiet professional, tried, tested, and dedicated. As we see in the text today, this life that we live is not without testing. 
to achieving excellence in maritime special operations. I am disciplined, confident, and highly motivated. As a child of God, what is your motivation? My honor and integrity are beyond reproach. And you know, I got the thinking in the scriptures about how elders and deacons are not the only ones with such standards. My commitment, unquestioned. How do those around you perceive your commitment unto the Lord? And my word trusted. The American people depend on me to carry out my mission in a professional manner. And you know, I got to thinking about how the Lord has called me to serve as his ambassador for my time here on earth, however long that may be. I maintain my craft, equipment, and myself at the highest level of combat readiness. I set the standard and lead by example. I am responsible for my actions. In other words, as a believer in, in Christ, sin matters to me. We talked about this already in Psalm 51. I'm going to call it what it is. By the biblical name, S-I-N. I challenge my brothers to perform as I expect them to challenge me. I was reminded in the scripture, exhort one another daily and so much more as you see the day approaching. I am ready for war. Church, I ask, are you ready for spiritual battle? Because we're in it. Whether you like it or not, it's here. I will close and engage the enemy with the full combat power of my craft. My actions will be decisive yet measured. As a believer in the Lord, my, my decisions will be governed, my actions will be governed by the word of God. I will always complete the mission. I will never quit. Our text today is going to tell us to be faithful until the end. To be faithful until death. My heritage comes from the sailors who operated the PT boats of World War II and the combatant craft of Vietnam. The legacy of these warriors guides my actions. And church, my heritage, your heritage as a Christian, one who is in Christ Jesus, comes from that great cloud of witnesses who helps you run the race set before you in Hebrews chapter 12. I will always remember the courage, perseverance, and sacrifices made to guarantee our nation's freedom. I uphold the honor of those who have fought before me and will do nothing to disgrace my proud heritage. On time, on target, never quit. That's the creed. You know, I was drawn to that code and, and creed of the Navy SEALs, warfare, combatant, craft crewmen. I spent some time looking through their webpage. And you know, when you're there and you're looking at it, it spells out very clearly the expectations of being a part of this elite team. In fact, you, you, can't, even, you can't even get an application without some prerequisites already in place. Physically fit men, 17 to 30 years of age. Asterisk, if you're 31 to 34, you may qualify with a waiver. I don't qualify anymore. At the end of it all, when you look and see, what you find is that there are no 
surprises about what's expected. To be a member of this special forces team, you must meet expectations. There's no half-hearted commitment being a part of this team. Protecting the country which they serve is deemed honorable. Life is at stake here. Lives are put on the line for the sake of the mission. Not a place for the faint of heart. No pretenders need apply for this. And I begin here for a good reason, church. The message delivered to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, 8 through 11 is a message of encouragement and hope to a group of people whose lives are on the line. This is delivered to a group of people whose lives are on the line. Not in the same manner just described by the Navy SEALs group, now, the lives at stake in Smyrna belong to those in the church at Smyrna. This church had a track record of persecution. Lives had been lost, no doubt, in this church due to a loyal, faithful allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. As I was reading through the slogan of the Navy SEALs, I was prompted to write down for the Christian what might be an appropriate slogan based upon the Word, based upon what I know from the Word. Instead of on time, on target, don't quit. How about in Christ, on the Word, for the truth. You see, in Christ, you are a participant with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You died to your old manner of living and have been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life, fueled now by the Holy Spirit. This newness of life, which springs from the cross of Christ is an offense to the world and serves as the cause for suffering and persecution. You see, to be in Christ is much more than word speak. It involves works that flow out of faith in Christ, works that bear fruit worthy of repentance, works that point to the one that you faithfully serve. Then there's on the word. The Christian stands on the word of God. The promises and the precepts and the principles herein are precious to the believer in Christ. On the word, the Christian stands and conforms himself to what's written in this word. The Christian understands that this word is inspired by God and is profitable for his soul. It's profitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for, rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's able to make you wise for salvation. This word shines a light for your feet and illuminates your path. The Christian navigates all of life on the word. Seeing things through a lens from this scripture that all of what may come my way happens in his but light affliction, which is but for a moment. The daily battle 
of the Christian is best waged not in the flesh, church, but in the Word and on the Word. And for His truth, if being in Christ and standing on the Word isn't sufficient grounds for persecution, then promoting the truth of Christ will surely bring opposition. You see, the Christian upholds the banner of truth, the truth embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, the truth contained within the very Word of God. It's on the side of truth that the Christian stands, understanding that all who hear Christ walk according to His truth. Truth is not compromised. The mission to make disciples, to reach the lost, to preach the gospel. Without truth, church, the mission at hand is fruitless. Without truth, each Christian stands as his own man, unaccountable to any standard, doing what is deemed right in his own eyes, which is what we find at the, beginning of the, at the end of the book of Judges, isn't it? Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. The Christian is faithful until death. And a warm embrace awaits the one who compromises the truth of Christ. Persecution is a foreign word to those who long to be companions of the world, to those who desire to please man and abandon the mission God has given to them. In Christ, on the word, for the truth. You know, church, I believe these words were very real to the church at Smyrna. And while there is little text given to the church at Smyrna in verses 8 through 11, there's great benefit from the text that is given. So let's not think for a moment that because there's little content here in this letter to Smyrna, that there is little to glean. Christ has much to say about this church. In short, there is one word that emanates from this letter, one word to especially heed for the church today, one word that few churches, it seems, are fussing and arguing over. Here's the word. Suffering. Suffering. It's interesting, the order of these letters to this point. Last week, Ralph spoke on the letter that was written to the church at Ephesus. And perhaps if we were to put one word and attach one word to that letter we would say love. Maybe the one word that we would attach to this one would be suffering. It's interesting to me that those two are back to back. I see here that Smyrna is the suffering church, the persecuted church. And you know, ministries exist today to highlight the cause of the persecuted church around the globe. And many of you here contribute to these ministries because it's a reminder to you to remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. You know, over this past week in studying this text, I've, I've truly grown in my, my love for this church at Smyrna. There are, there are truly many things to love about this particular church as evidenced from these four verses, but also from a, a further historical understanding of what was going on at the time, a further understanding of the, of the history of Smyrna itself. So let's look at the text, and let's see the message of Christ to this church at Smyrna. 
First of all, and as we organize this and go through the text, I'm going to go through it in such a way that it's going to be very similar to all of the letters. There may be bits and pieces of each of these letters that Christ does not address, but really there's, you'll see a recipient right out of the gate. Who is it that Christ is writing this to? Who's this addressed to? This is a letter. Who's it being addressed to? And so that's the first thing we come across here in, in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Okay? First of all, it's important for us to understand um, Smyrna is located in relationship to Ephesus, about 35, 40 miles north of Ephesus, okay? On the west coast of, the, um, of Asia along the Aegean Sea. If you have your maps in the back of your Bibles, you can, you can track and be able to see that pretty clearly if you want to flip to the back. Most of you have maps in the back of your Bibles, and you can see where Ephesus is, and if you look just north, you'll be able to see, Lord willing, it's on your map. Uh, Smyrna is about 35, 40 miles north of Ephesus. Sometime around 600 B.C., Smyrna was destroyed by a group called the Lydians, and for some 400 years, it remained destroyed. And around 200 B.C., a man named Lysimachus had it rebuilt as a planned and unified whole. One writer says it was built with streets that were broad and straight and sweeping and beautifully paved. The city that once was had been destroyed and some 400 years later is now brought back to life. Smyrna received its name from one of its principal products a sweet perfume called myrrh. This was a gum resin taken from a shrub-like tree. And you see myrrh traced throughout uh, Scripture many occasions. It had a bitter taste. that The resin uh, of the tree was used in making perfume. Uh, we see that uh, it was one of the ingredients used in the anointing oil. In fact, one of the primary ingredients used in the anointing oil of the priests. In Exodus chapter 30, 23, it was one of the gifts offered to the Christ child in Matthew 2, verse 10. It was also used in the embalming of the dead. We see that in the case of Nicodemus in John 19, 39. Smyrna is, is Greek for myrrh, this fragrant perfume used in burial. And you know, I got to thinking, could it be that, that, that Smyrna is a representative church for the martyrs of Christ throughout the ages. Much suffering, the aroma of persecution, the aroma of death, not uncommon in the city of Smyrna. There's an authority speaking here in the text. Not only do we have a recipient, but in the second half of verse 8 it says, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. If you read through the seven letters, one of the things that you see that is common there, there is a self-designation in each of these letters. Christ, if you have red letter edition, you see all of these words are red letters. Christ is speaking these very words. Christ is designating himself to these churches in different ways. Not just at random. I don't believe so. I believe the names that he designates for himself. In each of these letters, there are some purpose or some reason behind the names that he gives to himself. 
And you know, these words here are reminiscent of what he's already spoken in, in Revelation 1. We see in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, John, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. We see in Isaiah even, you go back to Isaiah and then three or four different occasions in Isaiah. Isaiah 41 verse verse 4. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last I am He. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And here in Revelation 2 verse 8, Christ is also mentioned as the first and the last. A title fitting for God is a title here in Revelation 2, 8. Attached to Christ himself. The name is evidence that Christ is God. God in the flesh. The very truth many Jews rejected in the days of Christ. The truth which many Jews and the people of Smyrna rejected even at the time of this letter. The stone of offense, Christ, is manifested at the church in Smyrna. And just as they stumbled over Christ while he was on earth, so too did the people of Smyrna stumble over Christ. You see, because there was pagan worship, emperor worship, gods, goddesses, feasts to the various gods, this was Smyrna. And in this context, the church at Smyrna found itself. And holding to Christ as God, seeing Christ as the Son of God, This didn't go over too well in a place like Smyrna. Christ designates himself here as the first and the last. But he also states that he was dead and came to life. You know, to a church that's going through an immense suffering, this designation, I believe, would bring great comfort. This also, remember, was a city that itself had once been destroyed and been brought back to life. Christ himself died. And three days later, he came back to life. And we see through the example of Christ that death has no hold on him. Death, no, there's no more sting now. And what comfort to know that the one writing the letter has gone through death He's come out on the other side victorious. What a joy to be in Christ, to stand on the word, to promote his truth. Transitioning out of verse 8 into verse 9, we see a commendation. The commendation of Christ. And time and time again in these letters, you're going to see this phrase, I know your works. I know your works. Christ upholds the works of the church throughout the letters to the seven churches in Asia. And we need to understand something, that while while your works 
don't save you. They are emphatically recorded here in Revelation 2 and 3. You know, you've heard that when things are repeated, they're important. In church, if you read the seven letters, one of the things you see is the phrase, I know your works. He brings the fact up. He knows these works in these churches. And it makes sense, church, given that Christ walks in the midst of the lampstands, right? He's privy to all that goes on in His church. And there's one thing to note about this church at Smyrna. Christ has no particular complaint about this church, no particular sin for them to repent of, no particular error to correct. And while not a perfect church, Smyrna nevertheless stands out when you read the seven letters. And I believe in some ways it's comparable to the church at Philadelphia in this regard and receiving a glowing report from Christ. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia truly receive this kind of commendation. Christ knows about Smyrna's tribulation. Tribulation. Philipsis is the word. The burden that crushes. Smyrna had long been loyal to Rome. In fact, we see from history that around 195 B.C., Smyrna became the first city to build a temple to Dea Roma, which was the god of Rome. And in the first century, Smyrna was chosen as the city to build a temple designated to worship the emperor Tiberius in the late 20s, I believe, A.D. Christianity was not welcomed here at the time of writing, which we're looking at approximately... Uh, 95 A.D., the writing here. To live out Christianity was dangerous business and worthy of a stint in prison with no guarantee of life. Tribulation was characteristic of the follower of Jesus in the city of Smyrna. And yet Christ says He knows all about it. The one who is the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows their tribulation. And not only was tribulation coming from the effect of the reigning emperor, who at this time is, we're led to believe that Domitian was the one who was reigning as emperor, but it came from those in Smyrna, those who held to various gods and goddesses, those who condemned the ways of Christ. And we see also from the text, and, and Christ mentions it here when we get to verse 10, but tribulation also came from the Jews. The burden that crushes this tribulation had come to Smyrna. Tribulation had been a track record for this group of faithful believers. And it's not all done yet. These things have been done, but it's not all done yet, as we see when we get to verse 10. Verse 9 also tells us, in addition to Christ knowing their works and their tribulation, Christ also knows the poverty of the church at Smyrna. And interestingly enough here, when you study out and look a little bit at the history, 
The city of Smyrna was deemed a beautiful city, a wealthy city, a prosperous city. Had a, had a wonderful, beautiful harbor that extended far out. It was wonderful and prosperous for trading. And yet the text says, I know your poverty. And the poverty mentioned here is not poverty in the sense of they didn't have an abundance of things. Not that kind of poverty. This was the poverty that essentially said they had nothing at all. They were emptied. Truly destitute, bankrupt. And you know, the poverty of the church at Smyrna comes in light of the context in which this church sits. Emperor worship, allegiance to the God of Rome, plurality of gods and goddesses. See, Christians were not welcomed here in this place. And as a result, many were unable to establish any foothold. Life was difficult for the Christian in Smyrna. You weren't likely to prosper financially in Smyrna if you were a Christian. You weren't likely to have a nice house. You weren't likely to practice your trade in Smyrna if you were a Christian because people just flat out wouldn't trade with you. The things of the world that you are so accustomed to, these these things were not readily available to the brethren at Smyrna. And it had everything to do with their faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ. In the context of knowing their tribulation and their poverty, Christ inserts this parenthetical phrase. I love this phrase. I love it. But you are rich. And what a contrast is seen between this church at Smyrna and the church at Laodicea, which we'll get to down the road. But the church at Laodicea says, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that that you may be rich. So you have on one hand a poor, rich church in Smyrna and a rich, poor church in Laodicea. Smyrna is representative of the church having gone through the fire. It is a refined church. It is a purged church. The impurities, the sinful entanglements that we see in Hebrews 12, how easily sin entangles one. Those, those sinful entanglements of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth. You don't see these things tripping up the church at Smyrna. You see, persecution has a way of cleansing, doesn't it? There's something different about this letter to Smyrna in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. It's amazing how many periphery things of the world and the sins that so easily entangle seem to grow dim in the midst of persecution. Smyrna is rich in the eyes of Christ because they're deemed rich toward the things of Christ. Laodicea is deemed poor because they seemingly had no need for Christ. They seem to be doing just fine on their own. Can you think of a better commendation, church? 
than for Christ to say, of this church, you are rich. It's a, it's a change of perspective, isn't it? What constitutes for you whether you are rich? Is your definition of rich tied directly to the things of the world? Is there a pursuit to be rich toward the things of God? If you had nothing else but Christ, would that be sufficient for you? Church, you and I both know there are people suffering around the globe today. As we speak, as I stand up here to speak, there are people suffering right now. And they have nothing but Christ. You know, it takes something like Scripture memory to a different level, doesn't it? When you see people all over the globe hungering and thirsting, for this word of God that they can't have. And so they try to absorb as much of it as they can in their mind and in their heart so they can hide it in their hearts and have it because they don't have anything. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ." Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You see, the belief and suffering are linked together there. Or what about 2 Timothy 3.12? Paul's writing to Timothy. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Or what about what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8.9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this text. That though he was rich, speaking of Christ, yet for your sakes he became poor. That goes back to Philippians 2, right? He emptied himself. He became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, having that righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ, makes you rich. <laughs> it's like what Paul says in chapter 3. I count all these other things loss, that I may know Christ and be found in Him, that I may experience and, and come to know the power of the resurrection. Look at the end of verse 9. Not only does he know these Works and tribulation, poverty, declares them to be rich. But he says, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You know, he addresses this same group of people, church, to, to the letter, the group in Philadelphia. The, the blasphemy spoken of here is characteristic of what we read in Romans a while back. It's characteristic of, of what you... See, going through, if you read through the book of Acts, time and again the Jews are stirring up trouble for the Christians, are they not? Time and again on Paul's missionary journeys, how often is he being persecuted? How often is he being 
uh, mobbed and riots are starting because there's a group of Jews following him from town to town trying to get rid of this guy who's upholding and preaching Christ crucified. Remember, Paul himself was once a part of this very group. Paul himself was once a persecutor of this way. They're stumbling over the stumbling stone is apparent even now in Smyrna. And you know, it's interesting when we think about a Jew and defining Jew. Paul told us in the book of Romans, chapter 2, 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Okay? Not only does Christ call out the blasphemy of the Jews. But he declares that their presence there in Smyrna was a congregation characteristic of Satan. Here's the point. Here's the takeaway here. If the church of Jesus Christ is not in Christ, if the church of Jesus Christ is not standing on this word, If the church of Jesus Christ is not promoting the truth of Jesus Christ. Call yourself what you want. You can have a polished title. You can have a fine looking building. You can have a large budget. You can have a grand list of missions that you might support. It's empty and it's hollow if it's not of Christ about Christ, for Christ's purposes. Your heart unveils your treasure, and where you have a heart absent of Christ, you have a treasure absent of Christ. A treasure, by the way, not worth having. Jesus doesn't just know of the blasphemy being spoken by those who say they are Jews. But he also exposes this group for what they really are. You see, when darkness comes into the light, it gets judged and exposed for what it really is, church. And that's what Christ is saying. I'm not just going to say they're speaking blasphemy. I'm going to call out what it is. I'm going to tell you what it is. Here's the characteristic of the way they're, way they're behaving and operating. They're, they're operating not as a church, a congregation of God, but as a congregation of Satan himself. Ouch. We get to the warning in verse 10. There's a warning. By the way, there's oftentimes a rebuke in these letters to the churches, but we don't see a a, a rebuke of, of sorts in this particular letter. We see a warning, though. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus knows all about their works. He knows their tribulations. He knows their poverty. He declares them to be rich. He knows the blasphemy of the Jews. But now in verse 10, he declares something yet to come. Note that. Something yet to come. We've already talked about their past. We've seen their past, this church at Smyrna. We've seen what it looks like. We've seen the context in which this church sits. But now in verse 10, there's something yet to come. 
The tribulation for the church at Smyrna will continue at least for a time. The suffering of those faithful to Christ, it's not quite done. The warning here is that this church is about to encounter yet another period of suffering. And yet in the midst of the warning, I want you to see the comfort of the Lord in these particular words. There is comfort here. There's hope here. There's encouragement here in these words. And the first thing, he said, do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Do not fear. We see that a lot in Scripture, don't we? Do not fear, right? Here it's mentioned, do not fear any of these things which you're about to suffer. Why? How, how so? Go back to how Christ designated his, his, his name. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. You see, church, you are in Christ. And standing on the word, you know that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. The Bible tells us that in 2 Timothy 3.12. Walking in the truth, you have no reason to fear. For God has said, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear. Secondly, don't let the devil win the day. Ah, this is, verse 10 could preach by itself. Verse 10 is powerful. The text says that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Note that word, some, some. Not all, some of you. Remember, this is going out to the church. And remember, remember in the context of the church, especially as we, we read in the New Testament, we see how parts in the body of Christ's church, how, how we're connected, right? There's a connectivity between the parts of the body. So some of you, see, see, here's the mindset some of you could have this morning. I want to caution against this. Some. Well, as long as it's not me. No, that's a wrong mindset. Because if it's some of you in the church, just as it was indicated here to the church at Smyrna, the ones that weren't going through it are also going through it, really, because they're connected to the parts of the body. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Church, we're connected one to another. So please don't have the mindset that, oh, well, I hope someone else gets this particular period of tribulation. Not me. No, no. Brothers and sisters, we're connected one to another. Let's be sure we're clear on that. You know, what a discouragement. As you think about this text, what a discouragement the devil that he can have if you allow him to win the day. You know, every day you wake up, every day you wake up, you have a new 24 hours. And most of you, by the time you get up, you've already used up six, seven, eight of them. You have opportunity every day to let the light of Christ shine through you. Or conversely, let the devil win through you. Don't let him win the day. See, the same devil, the slanderer, who was about to throw some in prison in Smyrna, is also a devil under the full control and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an amen. Absolutely. That's good news. 
You see, the devil can only do what he's given permission to do. And even in that, remember that the Lord can use the devil's worst intentions for his own good purposes. What the devil does for evil, evil God does oftentimes turn for his own good. Don't let the devil win the day. Don't allow your prison circumstance. Some of you today are in a prison circumstance. Don't allow your prison circumstances to dictate your witness for the Lord Jesus. You are in Christ. You stand on this word. And you are about upholding the truth of Christ. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. Because the word tells us he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He has nothing on you. If you are in Christ Jesus. All the more reason, if you are not in Christ Jesus today, let's get there today. My hope and the hope of all of those in Christ Jesus here today is that you too would be in Christ today. Number three, know that suffering is a test. While the devil might have his own purposes for bringing about suffering in your life, the Lord has a purpose. The suffering you go through is a test. Job, great example, right? Great example of the one who suffered greatly. You know, unbeknownst to him, there was this conversation in the heavenlies about this man, Job. God raises this man, Job, up, says, look at this man. He's upright. He fears me. And, and the devil says, yeah, but he does that for a reason. It's because you're protecting him. Let me do some things to him and let's see what he does then. And you read Job 1 and 2 and you read about the two tests. Job went about the suffering, losing his stuff, all of his stuff, and his children. How's that for a test? Would Job disown God and curse him because of his suffering. The devil thought so. And God allowed the test to take place. And you know, the story of Job reminds me of the opportunity that you have to bring great glory to God through suffering. Through the period of testing, you can get bitter, you can whine, you can start finding other things to complain about, you can get grouchy. You can act like everyone is out to get you. You can carry around a victim mindset. You can start feeling sorry for yourself. But think of it this way. You have the opportunity to pass the test. You have the opportunity to pass the test. Pass the test, church. Pass it. Pass the test for the name of Christ. You are in Christ. You stand on his word and you promote the truth of Christ. Pass the test. Be found faithful. Notice what else is in verse 10. The period of tribulation is short-lived. It's short-lived. This is wonderful. And think about it contextually how the church at Smyrna would have received this. 
You see, most of us don't get this, do we? You're about to get a period of testing for 10 days. We don't get that. I don't. I don't. Maybe you do. I, I don't. We just, it's a period of testing. And we're to be found faithful through the period of testing. And we see that we can take heart right here that the tribulation that you experience here on earth, it's short-lived. And in the case at Smyrna, the period of suffering we see from the text is some 10 days. 10 days. That's what it says. 10 days. And it all cracks me up as I, as I do some study on this because people want to decipher and 10 days. Does it really mean 10 days? 10 days. Church, it's 10 days. 10 days. Okay, there may be some other symbolism and numbers and stuff out there. And I'm, I'm just, I'm laying it out there. I'm saying it's 10 days. Okay, 10 days. It's a short period. And you know, as you think about 10 days, you think about your life and how your life, it's such a short little blip, right, on the timeline of eternity. You're here for a while and you're gone. You're, you're missed. You're gone. That's what the scripture tells us. And when you consider the eternal perspective, the time of tribulation is short here, whatever length it may be. See, I've lived out uh, almost 40 years, almost. Come January, it'll be 40 years. Ouch, 40 years. It's gone quickly. It has. And and there's some of you here who have children who are grown and gone. It's gone quickly, hasn't it? I'm reminded of the weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And you know, as a citizen of heaven, let no tribulation steal the joy you have in Christ. Those of you who know the truth, let that truth set you free and live victoriously in Christ. Verse 10 concludes, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I can't think of greater words of comfort right here for for a church going through a period of tribulation, suffering, and persecution. The promise attached to the imperative. Be faithful until death. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison. Some of you may die through persecution. There's a very real possibility that some of you are going to die through this persecution. Are you going to remain faithful to me through this? I was reminded of that slogan again. Don't quit. Remember that you are in Christ. Remember, the scripture says you died with Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. And now the life you live in the flesh, you're to live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Galatians 2.20 says. The charge is to be faithful. The promise is a crown of life. The Stephanos was the victory wreath given to the winners of the games. Be faithful unto death, and Christ promises to give you. See, before you even get to the crown of life, the thing that amazes me is that Christ is going to give me anything. I don't deserve anything. The text says he's going to give me something. Praise the Lord. And what he's given, going to give to me, it's not a small thing. He's going to give to me a crown of life. That's what he's going to give to me. 
See, you might, you might die in the midst of your persecution. You might die as you go through your suffering. But be found faithful. Be faithful until death. All the way. All the way. To the finish line. Wherever that line ends up being, go all the way. Faithful unto Christ. And you receive from the Lord a crown of life. Reminds me in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved. It's another way of thinking about going through the test. When he's been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. To those who love him. Hold on to the promise. And, and let's look at verse 11 as we close. Stay with me here. This is the call to hear, which is going to be found in, in all of these letters. The call to hear. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that mean? What's that all about? Listen closely and hear what I'm saying. <laughs> and he said a lot already. God gave this revelation of Christ to show his servants. He sent it by way of his angel to the writer, John, who is carried along by the Holy Spirit, who is here revealing the very words of Christ. Listen closely to what has just been spoken. And then there's finally the call to overcome. And again, this is consistent throughout the letters. The call to overcome. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who overcomes. Who is he that over overcomes? That's a question I hope you ask yourself when you read the text. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 gives us an answer to that. You know what I found interesting? Is that some of these supplemental texts, John is the one who wrote, accompanied by the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Revelation. John also wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John also wrote the gospel. And I see some wonderful themes weaved throughout these books. And we see in 1 John 5, he gives us that definition of overcoming. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John 16, 33. Jesus is speaking and he says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. He's telling his disciples this before he goes to the cross. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Are you seeing the connection here between being an overcomer, what that looks like, why it's so important to be an overcomer and to know what an overcomer is going to receive? You see, an overcomer is a Christian is one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He is in Christ. He's standing on this word. He's promoting this truth of Christ. He who overcomes, according to the text, shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death is in reference to the judgment yet to come. And, and really, you look at the end of Revelation, and you see a couple, a couple verses that tie directly into this. Revelation 20, 14, and 15 talking about death and Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Next chapter, 21, verses 7 and 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Listen to that. 
The overcomer is going to inherit all things. He will, and, and I will be his God. And he, will, he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There were those in Smyrna, church, who had lost their lives. They died a first death. Faithful soldiers of the Lord. They were not hurt. Will not be hurt by the second death. You see, they received the crown of life. And the second death shall not hurt them. Those who belong to Christ are only going to die once. And after that, with names being written in the book of life, they will inherit all things and forever dwell with the Lord. Those outside of Christ will die twice. Experience that second death with the likes of death and Hades being cast into the lake of fire. John 17, 3, Jesus says in his prayer to the Father, this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? Here's the definition. Here it is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, Jesus says, praying to the Father. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. And that crown of life, isn't it interesting in the text how at the end of verse 10 we see what Christ is going to give to those who are faithful unto death and it's contrasted and it's it's seen in the light of also looking at verse 11, the overcomer, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. No, no, no. For they will receive the crown of life. I'd like to close by pointing us to a story of a man that many of you probably have heard of. I believe it's very appropriate to share a portion of his story in light of the text that we're reading. The following is, is read from the martyrdom of Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. He was a leader in the church at Smyrna. He was martyred in 156, thereabouts, A.D., approximately half century after the writing of Revelation. Listen to these words. Give his testimony. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, Swear the oath, and I will release thee. Revile the Christ. Polycarp said, Four score and six years have I been his servant. By the way, in case you don't know four score... Six years, that's 86 years. Okay? I have been his servant, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But on his persisting again and saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered, If thou supposest vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as thou sayest, and feignest that thou art ignorant who I am, hear thou plainly, I am a Christian. But if thou wouldst learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and give me a hearing. 
I love that. It sounds like what Paul did, remember, when he was on trial? And he, oh, let me tell you a little bit about it. And he says, oh, you're trying to win me over? And then, oh, that I would lo- I'd love to have you and everyone else to come to know this Christ. The proconsul said, prevail upon the people. But Polycarp said, as for thyself, I should have held thee worthy of discourse. For we have been taught to render as is meet to princes and authorities appointed by God such honor as does us no harm. But as for these, I do not hold them worthy that I should defend myself before them. Whereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts here and I will throw thee to them except thou repent. But he said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us, but it is a noble thing to change from untowardness to righteousness. And then he said to him again, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire if thou despisest the wild beasts, unless thou repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest that fire which burneth for a season, and after a little while is quenched. For thou art ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Come, do what thou wilt. Church, this morning, it's my hope that the text would be a reminder to be faithful unto death. Be faithful until death knowing that you receive the crown of life, knowing that he'll give you the crown of life. And remember this, who we are as a Christian. Maybe a slogan that's appropriate not only for the church of Smyrna, perhaps it ought to be a slogan that we too carry around with us day by day. In Christ, on the word, for his truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the the lessons learned from this church at Smyrna. Oh, Father, I pray for each one here. I pray for this church of yours here at Hope in Christ. That we truly would, collectively, together, walk in Christ. Stand on the word that you've given And be about promoting the truth that you've preserved for us. The truth which is embodied in the person of Jesus himself. The truth which is contained in the content right here in the scripture. The word that you've given to us. May we come on this side. Partner with the truth. And uphold the banner of truth. And Lord as we do these things. As we see ourselves in Christ as we walk and stand upon the word and promote your truth, Lord, help us to remember that in doing these things and being the kind of person you've called us to be, 
Father, what oftentimes in this world comes along with that is suffering and persecution. For Lord, there are many in the world today who hate the very things of Christ. I pray that we would be characteristic of that love that we saw needed in the church at Ephesus. Oh, I pray, Lord, that your love would abound in our hearts. I pray that your love would abound in this place, that as people come in the door of this school building where we meet, that the love of Jesus Christ would be evidenced. Lord, I pray as well that they would see a church here that is content being poor in regards to the things of the world and yet longing to be rich in the things of Christ. I pray they would see a church that desires to be found faithful until death. That whatever tribulation we may be going through together as a church, that, Lord, we would march together as a body, exhorting one another daily, stirring one another up toward good works, all in light of the day, capital D, that is approaching. Oh, Father, I pray that you would do a great work here in your church at Hope in Christ. Lead us, Lord. I pray we would listen well, that we would be attentive to what the Spirit is saying. Father, thank you for this church at Smyrna. And I do pray, Lord, just take this opportunity here as we close to pray for those all over the globe who are right now being persecuted because of their belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I pray, Lord, you would use them in a mighty way to bring glory to your name, that the brothers would be strengthened across the globe because of certain brothers who may right now find themselves in prison behind bars, being maligned in some way, shape, or form because of being in Christ. I pray that you would be the sufficient strength for them, Lord, that you would remind them and recall to them, Lord, your words. Give them, Lord, everything they need. And I pray that in the meantime, we would be faithful as a church body, as brothers and sisters, to lift them up in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your perfect word. It's so good, and we're so grateful. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.